Please be seated. Let us pray before the reading and preaching of God's word. Our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would indeed open up our hearts tonight, for our eyes are dull, our ears cannot hear what you are saying to us unless your spirit comes through your word and speaks to us. We thank you that you are a gracious God who has made yourself known so we can know your ways, we can know your truth and walk in that truth. So do that tonight, that as we leave here, as we consider these words, that we will live differently because your word is true. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13. This can be found on page 900 of your church Bible. John chapter 13, I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. John 13, 1 to 4, this is the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. This is the word of the Lord. I'm on... I'm on. You want to know that I'm switched on. I am. John 13, we're, we're moving uh, towards the, one of the greatest uh, and most glorious parts of the Bible. If you can distinguish any part from another, that is, in terms of its glory, uh, this section that we're coming up to includes the farewell of Jesus to his disciples. Perhaps no political farewell was, has as much significance for the world as the farewell of George Washington to the American people. Such was Washington's popularity and power that had he wanted to, he could have begun a political dynasty or dynasty uh, and secured the leadership of the United States for his family or chosen successor going forward. Instead, to the surprise of everybody, outside America especially, he stepped down from the leadership of the country. King George III, not a popular individual in American history, said about Washington when he heard the news, if that news is true, then he is the greatest of men. Instead of keeping power to himself, he extolled federal government he warned against the divisive party spirit. He stressed the importance of religion and morality for the public good. And by standing aside, he set the tone for the peaceful transition of power from one president to the next, politically, one of the greatest acts in history. On a very different level, of course, but, and with even greater significance for the world, we find two great farewell discourses in Scripture. One is the farewell of Moses to the children of Israel and his appointment of 
Joshua as the one who would lead the people into the promised land. The counterpart to that in Scripture is this farewell, the farewell of Jesus to His apostles recorded in John 14 to 16. The farewell begins with this symbolic and prophetic action of Jesus as He washes His disciples' feet. The whole event is loaded, loaded with significance for the Lord Jesus and for His people. The whole event, the action, prefigures His passion, His death on the cross. It acts as a kind of narrative introduction to His official farewell to His disciples. And as we approach the action that we're going to look at over these next weeks, barring next week, the action, because you won't be here, and you really need to get it firsthand. So I'm not doing it next week, Sunday evening. But somebody else is speaking. Just so as you know, we're not shutting down for any foreign dignitary. First of all, throughout John's gospel, there have been references to two chronological markers, one representing Jewish festivals and the other representing Jesus' time. And these two chronological markers, the festivals and the time or the hour, as Jesus calls it, now converge because we're told right at the very beginning it was before the Feast of Passover, and Jesus knew that His hour had come. So those two things come together. Secondly, there are significant transitions away from the Old Testament, Old Covenant community, which has now decisively, publicly, in terms of its own hierarchy, rejected Jesus. Going back to verse 37 of chapter 12, though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. Then verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, He departed and He hid Himself from them, and He has no more to do with them. Publicly, He has said His last word to Israel. He has said His last word to the Jewish authorities. And so in verse 1 of chapter 13, the focus now is on His own who were in the world, His own who were in the world. He has turned from them to His own, from the Jews corporately to the representatives of a new covenant community, the believing Jews within the nation generally. He is now focusing on them. And from now on, the real contrast will not be the Jews and Jesus, but the world and Jesus. The world, that word occurs about 40 times in the farewell discourse. Thirdly, there is a deliberate echo of Moses' farewell that I mentioned. Moses' farewell to Israel in Jesus' farewell to His new Israel. There are, kind of, there are structural and thematic similarities. There is in both of them an instruction to virtue. In Moses, the law. In Jesus, love one another and His commandments that He refers to. In Moses, uh, Moses' impending departure, and in Jesus, His depend, impending departure. There are words of comfort to those left behind, and there's a concern in both of them for succession, for Moses, Joshua, for Jesus, the apostles. 
There's also an echo of covenant language in Moses' farewell in Deuteronomy, especially in the use of five major verbs that are used by Jesus as well in His farewell, the verbs to love, obey, live, know, and see. And there are differences. For the Jesus who goes away will come again. The Holy Spirit will continue to bring His presence and make it real with the disciples wherever they go so that we can say, not only is the Holy Spirit with me tonight, but Jesus is with me tonight. And instead of appointing Joshua to take them into the promised land, Jesus is the great Yeshua. He is the great Savior. He is the one who leads the people into the promised land. He goes into heaven itself. He goes to prepare a place for His people and promises that He will come and take them to be with Him where He is. He is our forerunner, and He goes to be glorified in His Father's presence with the glory He had with Him before the world was. And fourthly, there's a cleansing theme in chapter 13 linked to the same theme in the context of John's gospel, John's action really begins with Jesus uh, at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. You remember where there were these great urns uh, that were there filled with water for ceremonial cleansing, maybe 300 gallons of them. Some say 500 gallons of them. And Jesus changes the water, you'll remember, into wine, not into grape juice, but into wine. And uh, then he goes from there. That, that's a signal, really, to what Jesus is there to do. He's there to change things. The old must go, the new must come. And he immediately then, in John's gospel, goes to the temple. Remember, he gets a whip. He chases out the money changers. He announces that the Lord is visiting his holy temple and cleansing it, cleansing of all that defiles. And uh, here in chapter 13... There's a cleansing element as Jesus washes his people's feet, as he, that's a symbol, but then actually he removes Judas the betrayer, he evicts him from their company, and he sends them out. So those are the four introductory elements of this great passage. So we're now ready to look at the first few verses. And the whole section really centers around Jesus what he knew, what he did, and what he said. Tonight, we're only going to look at the first one, what he knew. And you can see that that's exactly the subject. Look at verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and he was going to the Father. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had put all things into his hand. John is putting a slight emphasis on these two elements, what Jesus knew. So Jesus and his disciples have gathered together to eat a meal in the run-up to the Passover and under the shadow of the cross. Already the die is cast. The authorities have decided that one man should die for the people. The devil has already entered into Judas Iscariot and persuaded him to betray Jesus. And now Jesus is alone with his people. This is an intimate moment with his people. In these hours, he will unburden his heart to his people. And in the preliminary to that teaching section, Jesus knew his mission, number one. Jesus knew his mission. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come, look at this, from a historical perspective, 
Jesus' mission is linked to the Jewish Passover. Now, you, need, you know all about the Passover, last plague in Egypt. Because of uh, Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to let the people of God go, the judging angel of God comes to Egypt. And the Jews in Egypt, you know, the Israelites in Egypt, they were worshiping the gods of the Egyptians. That idolatry was gripped into their hearts. And so when the judgment came, it was going to come to everybody in Egypt, whether they were Jews, Israelites, or Egyptians, or whoever they were. And the firstborn son in every, in every home in Egypt was to die. And you'll remember the Lord made a way of escape. If the lamb was killed... The blood was sprinkled on the doorposts and the lintels of the home. The angel of death would pass over that home and the child would live. The Passover, the judgment, the curse was passed over on the basis of the sacrifice of the innocent lamb. And already, politically, as we've seen in the previous chapters, the Roman authorities have decided, or the Jewish authorities rather, have decided that the only way to stop this Jesus movement becoming a political hot potato and bringing down upon the establishment of Judaism, the whole might of the military machine of Rome, was that one man should die for the people. Jesus should be eliminated, rubbed out, terminated in order that that judgment should not fall on them. But behind that political decision of the Pharisees, there is this spiritual reality that we've seen right from the beginning of John's gospel. For the Passover has been an underlying theme throughout this book, right at the very beginning in the first chapter where twice we find John the Baptist identifying Jesus as the Passover lamb. Behold the Passover lamb who takes away, bears away the sin of the world. From a historical perspective, Jesus' mission is linked to the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. He will offer the one sacrifice that will divert the wrath of God so that it passes over his believing people. From an eternal perspective, Jesus' mission is linked to the divine purpose. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. That word hour, we've noticed, has come up again and again in John's gospel. Up to now, he's been insisting that that hour has not yet come. But in chapter 12, we saw Jesus getting a divine nudge, a divine signal that his hour had now come. We've already learned that that phrase, that word, the hour, that time, the time that he is waiting for, is an inclusive thing. It captures the cross and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, all the work that lies before him for him to get from where he is there in Palestine to his throne in glory. Back in chapter 7, Jesus had said to his disciples, I will be with you a little while longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. Later on in the evening, in chapter 16, this very evening, he'll say, I came from my father and I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to my Father. There's the whole sweep of his life captured in those words. And even later in the evening as he prays in chapter 17, I'm no longer in the world, they're in the world, I'm coming 
to you. From the eternal perspective, Jesus' mission is linked to his divine purpose, the divine purpose, which was that Jesus should go through this dark path on the way to glory. And then from the personal perspective, the mission of Jesus is linked to his own people. That's really what I want to rest for a moment this evening in our, in our exposition. It's impossible to escape the intention of Jesus' death. His name, Jesus, means God is Savior. And we're told in Matthew, you remember what that means for us. It means this, that He has come to save His people from their sins. Jesus echoes that when He's talking about Himself as the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd calls His own sheep by name, and they follow Him. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. The sheep are those whom He knows and who know Him and who follow Him. They are His people. Later, He will pray in chapter 17, the prayer that He prays in the garden before His arrest. He says, Father, I've manifested Your name to the people You gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to me, and I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those that You have given me out of the world, and for their sakes. Here He is as the high priest, consecrating the sacrificial victim, for their sakes, I consecrate myself. Now, what we are learning from that little section there is an insight into the intention of Jesus' death. Not the value of Jesus' death. The value of Jesus' death is obviously infinite. He is the Son of God. Everything that He did has infinite power and infinite ability. His death is such that if everybody, everybody, whoever lived and ever will live, believes in Him, He would have had to do no more to, uh, to gain their salvation than He did when He died on the cross. Absolutely. But the big issue is this. What was His purpose, His intention, His mission in dying? And here, as Matthew says, and here as Jesus repeats, his intention was to secure the salvation of God's people. The people of whom he can say, they were yours, you gave them to me, and for their sakes I consecrate myself. His elect, to whom God had pledged his son. Now, I know that's a problem for some people, the idea of a definite and deliberate atonement, Jesus deliberately coming into the world in order to secure the death of His own people whom the Father had promised to Him. In my own Christian life, I, I kind of discovered this in reading the Bible when I was a boy, and, uh, and I discovered this week a little box of notes of sermons that I preached uh, when I was in my early teens. And one of the first talks I ever gave to the Christian Endeavor group in my church was on this very subject, talking about what was Jesus' purpose in dying? Well, He died to save His own people. It was a very definite atonement. It was a very specific and particular atonement. He died for His people to save His people. The death of Jesus was deliberate, ordained, and targeted. And it's texts like this, which have the passion in view, 
that make it clear that whatever the value of his death, it happens specifically to secure, to make possible, to put beyond any peradventure or doubt the salvation of his own people. Now, you might want to, to take a moment just to think and reflect on how it is that a person becomes one of Christ's own. Remember, what does it say in verse 1 here? Having loved his own. That's, in, that's what, it, what he has in view here in this text. His own. What does it mean to be one of Jesus' own? Well, it means to be his own because we belong to Christ. Number one, by the Father's eternal decision and choice. Each believer is the Father's love gift to the Son chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And secondly, we belong to Christ by the Son's redemptive rights. He bought us. He paid the price for us. He owns us. He purchased us by His blood. He purchased men and women for God. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. That was the price for our salvation. Or Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we're his by the Father's eternal decision. We're his by the Son's redemptive rights. And we're his by the Spirit's effectual call. It's the Spirit that creates faith in our hearts. It's the Spirit that gives the new birth. It's the Spirit that calls us, draws us. In the language of John's gospel, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That is a mighty pull that is irresistible. It is the irresistible and effectual call of God. Because of those factors being in play, we are his own. And that means we never stop being his own. We'll never perish. And no one will ever be able to pluck us out of the Father's hand. Now, you see this in this passage, don't you? He is with his own. And do you notice the emphasis of the passage is that he loves his own. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, I think hear someone say, because I can read your minds, I hear somebody say in their head, well, doesn't the Bible say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? So which is it? Is it that he gave his life for his own or he gave his life for the world? So let me, let me even slow down a bit more than here for you since you're not going anywhere and uh, talk about the love of God for a moment. Uh, Don Carson once wrote a book called uh, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And it's, a, it's a quite helpful book, a small book, but if you get a hold of it, it's quite useful here. Not everything is, but this is a very useful little book. And uh, in this little book, he distinguishes the ways in which the Bible talks about the love of God. Uh, the Bible, for example, teaches that God loves everybody and everything that he has made. He clothes the grass of the field. He feeds the lions and the birds and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And the sun shines on the godly and the ungodly. We call that the loving providence of God for all His creation. God loves everything that He has made. Secondly, God acts in Christ for the sake of the world. God so loved the world. 
And as Don Carson puts it, that refers to the bigness and the badness of the world. The word world in John's gospel refers to a moral order, not just the planet, a moral order, the willful, rebellious world system that excludes God. And Jesus comes into this world, in Christ, God comes into this world in Christ. And what does He do? He acts in kindness towards men and women. He invites everybody to the gospel feast. He orders the church to take the good news to the furthest corners of the globe. And He encourages His own people to love their neighbor and love their enemy. The world benefits from the work of Christ in hearing the gospel and in being loved to death, hopefully, by Jesus' people. God does love the world. But thirdly, in the Bible, there is the particular, effective, selecting love of God towards His elect. That's always the way He's worked. He chose Israel. That choice was never attributed to anything in them, any national merit or personal merit. In fact, they weren't very good at all. No, Christ loves the church, warts and all. He chose 12 to be with Him and to form the nucleus of a new covenant community, the new Israel, and He chooses us out of the world, and He sets His love upon us, and that is a saving, personal, relational love that He gives to His people. So He loves us, but how does He love us? Does he love us the way a young man might love his girlfriend? You know, he may say to her, you know, I love your smile. Just lights up the room when you walk in. I, I love the way the sunlight plays on your hair. I love the way I lose myself when I look into your eyes. I love the smell of your perfume. You know, I could sit and listen to you all day long, never get tired, can't get enough of your voice. And when you're not there, it's as if the very light has gone out of my life. If you've never felt like that, you've never lived. That's what a young man might feel about his beloved. But do you know what God thinks about us? I actually think his approach to us would be more like this. Actually, I, I find you rather repugnant. <laughs> you smell and your teeth are bad. You're quite ignorant of eternal things. Uh, you've done nothing but break my heart from day one since you were born. You are as unattractive to me as it is possible to get. But I love you anyway. He says that to everyone, but he says even more to his elect. I've set my love upon you from the foundation of the universe. Not because you're wiser, stronger, nicer, better than anyone else, but because in grace I chose you and I chose to love you. You are mine. I am committed to you. I am committed to saving you and keeping you and one day transforming you and making you the perfect bride that I'm going to make you. In this is love, writes John, the same John later. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Well, look at this. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. He loved them by coming into the world. He loved them by taking on human nature. He loved them by being born in poverty. 
and obscurity, being misunderstood and mistreated by his countrymen, by taking verbal abuse, by exposing himself to scandal and lies, by the humiliation he experienced from the rejection by the people he had come to save and come to help. He loved them to the end, to the end of his life he loved them. He did not shrink from that death on the cross. He came to die for his people, bearing shame and scoffing root in my place. Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquity. On the cross, on the cross, as it came near to him, you might have wondered whether his thoughts might be focused upon himself and the awful agonies he was about to suffer. That maybe for a moment, for a nanosecond, he might have hesitated or even regretted giving his life for such as we are, the ungrateful, the unworthy. Supposing he'd become impatient with these men who should have known better. They'd been with him for three years. They should have understood more. And when in this last little chapter, these last chapters with them, you see how little they remembered and how little they knew. But no, he loved them utterly. He loved them utterly and he loved them to the end, to the very point of death. He loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. My dear friend, there is no end to the love of Jesus for his own He'll love you to the end of your earthly life. And he's already preparing a place to take you to when that life comes to an end. And he will love you to the end of ends. And since there is no end forever, his love will never let us go. His love knows neither measure nor end. Jesus knew his mission. And Jesus knew his authority. Well, there's a twist here in verse 2. We're told that the devil is active. The devil somehow comes onto the scene here. Now, interestingly, isn't it in the Bible, the devil is active where? In the beginning, in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. And you hear about the devil in the book of Job. And then he's kind of there and thereabouts, but he's not really very prominent until Jesus comes right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's exposed to the devil. The devil gives him all he's got, assaulting the soul of the Lord Jesus. And the devil is active here at the end. Look at that. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. You see how we have here the action of the devil and the handing of authority into the hands of Jesus. The authority of Jesus is placed against the dark background of the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. He's going to betray. He has caused Judas. He has nudged Judas. And the darkness in Judas' own heart, he's nudged Judas, Judas down the road to this point whereby Jesus would be betrayed, that is, handed over into human hands to be done with as he pleases. 
when it talks about Judas's heart, one scholar puts it like this, the heart is the seat of the will, and a heart moved by the devil wants what the devil wants. Judas wanted what the devil wanted. And behind Judas and the Sanhedrin and Pilate and the executioners stands this ancient foe, the serpent, Satan, and all his works. But Satan's pretended power is not the last word. In this gospel, there is a focus on this grand plan to bring Jesus to the cross. But Satan's designs, you see, serve the Lord's purposes. For the Father has given all things into Jesus' hands. The Father is no idle spectator. He is actively working out His will for the salvation of the world through the cross of His Son. And later in the evening, the Son will say to the Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. With all this power at His disposal, you might expect Him to skip the cross or eliminate the devil in some grand demonstration of naked power or neutralize Judas permanently, but instead he goes on to wash the feet of the disciples in utter humility, picturing what he will do on the cross. Jesus knew his authority. And lastly, Jesus knew his identity. Jesus knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God. There's not a shred of doubt in his mind as to his identity. We talk about the self-consciousness of Jesus the Messiah as the Son of God. Listen to what he says in chapter 8. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. I come from God. I came from God, and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Later on in chapter 16, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. And do you see, knowing that He had come from God and was going back to God, that, that is the background to the action Jesus will take and the decision that Jesus has made to go all the way to the cross. His life is not taken from Him. The initiative is in His hands. All authority has been placed in His hands. He has the power to give up His life and to take it again. He is not a victim of circumstances. He is not the butt of some great cosmic joke. He has come from heaven for precisely this moment. There is no confusion in Jesus' mind. He knows He is one with the Father. It was from Jesus Himself the early Christians learned that He is God, knowing that He had come from God and was going back to God. There's the real explanation of what is going on in Jesus' life. Come from pre-existence, going back, eternal existence. He is the Son of God, made human. He is the Son of God who is about to be exalted as the God-man in the highest place that heaven affords. Jesus knew exactly who He was, what authority He had, what His mission was. He had come to love His own to the end, to love His sheep, His own, those the Father had given to Him. And having loved 
He loved to the last breath. He loved to the highest intensity. He loved beyond the limits of endurance. He loved in the concrete action of self-abandonment, self-giving, self-sacrifice. Christian friend, the Lord Jesus loved you from eternity. He's loved you without restraint. He's loved you without holding back. He's loved you without counting the cost, without thought to himself, without balking at the agony of rejection in that deep corridor of wrath through which he had to pass in order to enter his glory. He has loved you with an everlasting love. And in the light of that love, come and keep the feast tonight. And remember what your salvation cost and all that your salvation has won. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your Son, our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that in his humanity he felt what we felt. But as the God-man, he knows exactly what he's here for. We praise you that you have exalted him to the highest place and that tonight he invites us to come to his table and to share with our brothers and sisters in this meal and to give praise and glory and honor to the the name of our glorious Lord. Draw near to us now, we pray in his strong name.